0: Welcome to Intersect, where church meets culture. I'm Josh Desch, pastor of community and discipleship at Northeast Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And I am joined as always by my pensive wife, Betsy. Hey, everybody. Betsy, you are always pensive, always thoughtful. And that's something I really admire about you. Thank you. Well, today we've got a book report. And it is, it's going to be a lively one, folks. The name of the book that we are going to review today is a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. This has been a controversial, much talked about, much discussed book. It has, in many ways, lit a fire under those who are evaluating what's going on in academia, higher education. Bets, do you want to very briefly introduce the two authors of this book, who these folks are, and and what a little bit of the background of the book is?
1: Yeah, this book came out um, in 2018. The authors are named Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. So um, this originally, this material originally came out in an article by the same name published in the Atlantic in September of 2015. So um, Greg Lukianoff is an attorney and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. That goes by the acronym FIRE. And Jonathan Haidt is um, the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He has a Ph.D. in social psychology.
0: All right, so to set this book report up, we want to play a YouTube clip for all of you. Now, what you're going to be hearing is student protesters at Yale University, and they are speaking to the master of their college, who is a professor who also functions something like an RA or a dean. Uh, Basically, these professors live with their families uh, on the residential campus with the students to provide there's supposed to be something like a parent figure uh, to invest in the students at Yale. I'm sure that I could give a better description of that. So, okay, so imagine you've got a group of undergrad students and they're speaking to the master of this house at Yale.
1: So we're sitting here telling you that you are being racist. You are being offensive. You admitted that you hurt us. Why can't you say sorry? That has been my biggest reaction from this email is that you're not listening. It is no longer a safe space for me. And I find that incredibly depressing. Okay. So I don't know if you caught all of that. um, But that was, like Josh said, students talking to a professor at Yale saying... That they felt unsafe. They were upset.
0: Yep. yep. Well. Well. Really. If if you and we'll we'll link to the full video. These students are deeply troubled. Mm-hmm. They are very very upset.
1: And this video goes on for many more minutes.
0: They are hurt
1: and becomes increasingly um, urgent and yep. distressed in tone.
0: Very. They are very very distressed. So you can imagine uh, you're you're wondering what is this about? I mean, was this about? Uh, a student murdered on campus, about a horrible assault, about some terrible uh, event occurring. I mean, surely this has to be the result of uh, some major issue in these students' lives. Right, Bets?
1: Yes. So we're going to revisit that um, interaction. But I just want to recommend this book, guys. This book is so important for parents, for grandparents, for educators, really for anyone who loves children and teens and young adults. Um, it speaks about broad trends in how we think about children and education. And you know you may not agree with it all. you may sure. not agree with the perspective of the authors, but it's very provocative. and I think it's great for starting different conversations. So just to set the stage, you may think, well, what's the context of this book? Why was it written? So I'm going to read you what I surmised was the thesis of the book. It's a little bit of a longer co- a longer quote from the introduction, so just hang with me. So the author is jumping right in, talking about the Atlantic article that was the starting point of the book that came out in 2015. The book came out in 2018. So now he's going to reference that article. In that article, we argued that many parents, K-12 teachers, professors, and university administrators have been unknowingly teaching a generation of students to engage in the mental habits commonly seen in people who suffer from anxiety and depression. We suggested that students were beginning to react to words, books, and visiting speakers with fear and anger because they had been taught to exaggerate danger, use dichotomous or binary thinking, amplify their first emotional responses, and engage in a number of other cognitive distortions. Such thought patterns directly harm students' mental health and interfered with their intellectual development and sometimes the development of those around them. At some schools, a culture of defensive self-censorship seemed to be emerging partly in response to students who were quick to call out or shame others for small things that they deemed to be insensitive, either to the student doing the calling out or to members of a group that the student was standing up for. We called this pattern vindictive protectiveness and argued that such behavior made it more difficult for students to have open discussions in which they could practice the essential skills of creative thinking and civil disagreement. So that was what led the authors to write that article in 2015 then the same trends continued and even intensified. And so the book is an extension of the questions yep. raised by that initial
0: article. So so what these authors are arguing is that by coddling institutions of higher education, not all of them, of course, but the mainstream, the dominant view, are actually stunting mm-hmm. the maturity, the intellectual, emotional maturity that adolescents need to become functioning, contributing members of society. Mm-hmm. That instead of building resilient people that know how to fail and get up and try again and, and to talk to figure people out disagree life with. and to interact and to be civil, that basically we are wrapping young people in emotional bubble wrap mm-hmm. and saying we got to keep them away from anything that could ever offend them.
1: That's right. Right? So th- kind of the... um. The working thesis of this book, like I said, was the book addresses the three great untruths that are often taught our children and teens in our culture, whether or not we're aware or intend to teach this. So here they are, guys. Listen up. The first one, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second one, the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. And the third great untruth is the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. So let's go back to our Yale confrontation that we referenced at the beginning of the episode and see if we can use that confrontation to illustrate what the authors are talking about, okay? So I'm going to read you another section from the book that describes what happened in that confrontation, what led to it, and what happened after that. So here we go. Another conflict over an email was unfolding at Yale. Erica Christakis, a lecturer at the Yale Child Study Center and associate master of Silliman College, one of Yale's residential colleges, wrote an email questioning whether it was appropriate for Yale administrators to give guidance to students about appropriate and inappropriate Halloween costumes as the college dean's office had done. Christakis praised their, quote, spirit of avoiding hurt and offense, but she worried that, quote, the growing tendency to cultivate vulnerability in students carries unacknowledged costs. She expressed concern about the institutional exercise of implied control over college students and invited the community to reflect on whether, as adults, they could set norms for themselves and handle disagreements interpersonally. Talk to each other, she wrote. Free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society. Okay, so that was the email she sent. The email sparked an angry response from some students who interpreted it as an indication that Christakis was in favor of racist costumes. A few days later, a group of of roughly 150 students appeared in the courtyard outside Christakis' home within Silliman College, writing statements in chalk, including, we know where you live. Erica's husband, Nicholas Christakis, who uh, was the master of Silliman, a title that has since been changed to head of college. When he came out in the courtyard, students demanded that he apologize for and renounce his wife's email. So as a side note, guys, that's That was the audio that you heard at the beginning of the episode, those students demanding an apology. Nicholas listened, engaged in dialogue with them, and apologized several times for causing them pain, but he refused to renounce his wife's email or the ideas it espoused. Students accused him and Erica of being racist and offensive, stripping people of their humanity, creating an unsafe space, and enabling violence. They swore at him, criticized him for not listening, and for not remembering students' names. They told him not to smile, lean down, or gesticulate. And they told him they wanted him to lose his job. Eventually, in a scene that went viral, one student screamed at him, Who hired you? I'm leaving out the expletive. (laughs) You should step down. It's not about creating an intellectual space. It's not. It's about creating a home here. You should not sleep at night. You are disgusting. Mm. The next day, the president of the university sent out an email acknowledging students' pain and committing to take actions that will make us better. He did not mention any support for the Christakises until weeks after the courtyard incident, by which time attitudes against the couple were entrenched. Amid ongoing demands that they be fired, Erica resigned from her teaching position, Nicholas took a sabbatical from teaching for the rest of the year, and at the end of the school year, the pair resigned from their positions in the residential college. Erica later revealed that many professors were very supportive publicly, but they were unwilling to defend or support the Christakas's publicly because they thought it was too risky and they feared retribution.
0: Mm.
1: So, that is, like I said, that is um, so the that confrontation that, that was playing out. All
0: that was over Halloween costumes.
1: It was, okay, so here's the deal, guys. This was over an email. The Yale administration sent an email to students asking them to be very sensitive in the Halloween costumes that they chose when they celebrated Halloween. Okay. I I read the email. It was pretty silly considering you're writing to young adults. So then Erica Christakis, a a Yale professor, wrote this email saying, hey, Yale administration, don't we think that the students can make their own choices and they can deal with this themselves? That email that she sent was so offensive, it led to this controversy.
0: So she, she wasn't even saying, I support this costume that is racist or could be construed as racist or she was, she was really encouraging them to act like adults and to try to uh, handle the situation on their own.
1: Right. If you see someone, If if
0: they were even to see something that bothered them. Yes. Yep.
1: Exactly. So that's just very interesting. That happened in 2015, um, there's an Atlantic article that was a follow-up to that called The New Intolerance of Student Activism. We'll post that on our show notes. Mm. Um, if you're interested about reading more on this topic, there's a lot of stuff out there. It, it was a fascinating interaction that just was very illustrative of where we are. Yeah. So we want to dig into those three untruths we mentioned and how they were manifested in this confrontation. So the first untruth is the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker, Okay, so this is, again, the authors telling us what's going on on college campuses. Certain kinds of speech—this is speech. This isn't even, you know, physical acts of violence or something like that. And even the content of some books and courses um, was seen to interfere with students' ability to function. The students wanted protection from material that they believed could jeopardize their mental health by triggering them or making them feel unsafe. Yep. So somehow— in this interaction we see college students saying they felt unsafe because they didn't like the just content. Just from of the email. email. Just right. so an
0: email made them feel unsafe.
1: That's right. And so here we see the untruth of fragility played out that these students are fragile that they need protection from speech that they don't like.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then And and can I can I just touch base here? Of course. So this is this is when you hear statements like trigger warnings. Mm. What that means is a college professor will have to say, okay, we're going to discuss this book. You need to know that on page 75 it describes uh, a rape or mm-hmm. sexual assault or um, someone is beaten or uh, – and, and increasingly works of great literature that have always been considered works of great literature or or history or these sorts of things are, are heavily censored, mm-hmm. uh, you know – or they're either removed completely from the curriculum or it's imperative that the professor give a trigger warning the idea being that the material could trigger uh, some kind of you know emotions of unsafety emotion, emotional yeah or mental um, you know, instability or something.
1: So what we don't want to say is that we shouldn't be sensitive to students who have had traumas in their past. Oh, absolutely, we should. We certainly should take um, all kinds of measures to to um, care for those students. But this is this is something that we're seeing broadly for all students that there's this movement that safety no longer means physical safety; it's expanded to mean emotional safety. Yeah. To, to care about people's feelings and emotional comfort, and that ideas can cause damage.
0: Yeah, and it, and it should be pointed out that a lot of times, let's say you're reading a book that depicts slavery. There was a time in history where that would have been accepted. Now, if you're reading that at a place like Yale, slavery is being criticized. It, it's not even so much that the idea is being held, held as a good thing. But even reading it itself, Mm -hmm. even interacting with with things that have actually happened in history or real ideas itself is now considered potentially really destructive. Mm
1: -hmm. So the authors talk about this rise of a culture of safetyism. All right. Obviously, they invented that word. Um, But tying into the idea of fragility, safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the the potential danger is. When children are raised in a culture of safetyism, which teaches them to stay emotionally safe while protecting them from every imaginable danger, it may set up a feedback loop in which kids become more fragile and less resilient.
0: Yeah, you're unintentionally promoting anxiety.
1: Yes, it's, exactly. It's,
0: it's a good intention. I think we should we should acknowledge that most of what we're talking about here is well-intentioned. Right. It's just the unintended consequences are not good.
1: That's right. The authors talk about um, a lot of the things that we see are just – they're part of a larger trend that they call the problems of progress. So the term refers this is how they define it this term refers to a bad consequences produced by otherwise good social changes. So it's good to want to keep our kids safe. Sure. It's good to want to be sensitive to children who have been traumatized in different ways. Those are all good things. But then sometimes in our moves to be protective or to be you know to to put out one fire you're lighting another one unintentionally.
0: Yeah, these these trends towards safety have been around for a long time. We're going to get into this later. But you know what safetyism is making me think of. Um, you remember rollerblades, Betsy? Did you rollerblade?
1: Oh heck yeah, I rollerblade.
0: Yeah, I mean you still. I, I'm sorry. That is. No, you still rollerblade. <laughs> I didn't make
1: that fast Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I man. don't really rollerblade anymore, but uh, I used to. We had routines to Mariah Carey.
0: Yep. We had routines
1: yep. to uh, Whitney Houston. Oh man.
0: Yep, rollerblading. I used to love going to the roller rink. Remember when you would rollerblade, remember all the pads that they made to put on for you? Okay, so let's go over the pads. You had the knee pads. Oh, yeah. You had the elbow pads. Elbow
1: pads, wrist guards. You
0: had the wrist guards. hmm And you had the helmet. Mm-hmm.
1: So you had a should lo- have made like a butt pad, like a big pillow.
0: A big butt pad. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you went rollerblade, man, you just, I mean, you were the coolest cat on the block. Yeah. I mean- <laughs> Totally. When, when you came out and you had all. We are the,
1: children of the 90s. We
0: are. Ch- Man, I had all those pads on. I was ready to crash like 800 times with, yes. with all those. I had my wrist guards on. I had my elbow pads. Yep. Um, but it does make me think about there was a time where uh, kids never wore helmets mm-hmm. and just went out. And um, of course, a helmet's a good thing. I always it want my kids thing. wearing a helmet. Right. But I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is in many ways, the pendulum has just swung so far mm-hmm. away from sort of the laissez faire, you know, days mm-hmm. where parents didn't even know where their kids are
1: or where they rode in a car without car seats. Oh yeah,
0: I mean, you hear that stuff all the time. Right. Hey, we're in the back of the station wagon, rolling you know, around. yeah, rolling around having a wrestling match. <laughs> um, hey, it's good that we have all that stuff now, but mm-hmm. what what these guys are bringing up is how far the pendulum has swung the other right.
1: way. Right. We've overcorrected. Yeah. So let's go back to the Christakis's, the second untruth, the untruth of emotional reasoning, okay, always trust your feelings. So where do we see that in this interaction? So one thing that the authors really do a a good job at drawing out is that this line of reasoning, um, everything rides on the listener's interpretation Mm. of what you're hearing rather than the speaker's intention, Okay, So I don't know if our um, – I know a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the term microaggression. Um, this was popularized in a 2007 article by a Columbia University professor, Okay, and I'm going to define it for you, a microaggression. Brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults toward people of color. So uh, the authors also note that the term was first applied to people of color, but now it's applied much more broadly to things that don't involve race. Um, so again, we return to that, to the problem with the line of reasoning was the word unintentional. If the if the listener hears you saying something, it doesn't matter if that was the speaker's intention. That's how they heard it, and that's what they're going to ride with. So like Erica Christock is saying all this stuff about you know, hey, figure out Halloween costumes yourselves. the The students heard her saying something that she wasn't saying, but they just they didn't stop to question it. They just kept on going and trusted their feelings. Yeah,
0: it's incredibly subjective.
1: Right, right. And no. um, so this is something that the authors say. Uh, the microaggression author encouraged the listener whoever is hearing the microaggressions, to engage in emotional reasoning, to start with their feelings and then justify those feelings by drawing the conclusion that someone has committed an act of aggression against them. But it's not a good idea to start by assuming the worst about other people and reading their actions as uncharitably as possible. This is the distortion known as mind reading. And if it's done habitually and negatively, it's likely to lead to despair, anxiety, and a network of damaged relationships. Mm -hmm. So you can see that all over the internet too, though. You know, all of these arguments on Facebook or whatever, how often is there any charitable grace given to someone, or is it just a pile on, like, hey, this is what you said, I don't care what you intended, you know, we see this everywhere, right?
0: Especially with sound bites and short uh, statements and that sort of thing. Right. Yep.
1: So the last untruth, guys, the untruth of us versus them, um, that's... We see that everywhere. I mean, tribalism isn't that just tribalism? Tribalism is everywhere in our mm-hmm. culture today. It's identity politics. Um, so one thing the authors talk about is there's two different kinds of identity politics. There's common humanity identity politics, where you talk about the things that unite you with your opponent, or there's common I- common enemy identity politics, which is used by both ends of the political spectrum. You you are uniting against. The other who is yep. evil. Yep. You see that on both ends, right? Yep. And left. Yep.
0: That's such a huge problem. Yeah. To just view the other side as the enemy.
1: It is. It. It really, really is. Um. And when, again, when you're when you're combining that with a culture where you just look at words and don't consider intent, the other side just becomes more and more of an enemy.
0: They're demonized. Mm-hmm. There. You. Do, you don't give a chance to hear what is in their heart, what they're honestly thinking, and you don't. Leave any room in your heart to potentially change your opinion yeah, at right, all, to even be challenged. even one percent. No, right. you are absolutely you know what you think in the right way, and that's it.
1: Those Yale students certainly didn't allow themselves to be challenged by, you know, what Erica Christakis said in her email. She, they were sure that they knew what she meant, and they wanted they wanted her husband to say sorry, which I thought was funny.
0: Yep, say sorry, yep. say <laughs> sorry.
1: It sounds very childish. Um, yeah, so. The authors, guys, we're going to wrap up pretty quick here. The authors give six factors contributing to how we um, got to this place, to this cultural moment where we see these three great untruths being taught. And there are six um, great factors. Obviously, we do not have time today to dig into those even a little bit. We're just going to look at a couple of them. Okay, So I will read you the six, and then we'll just take a a closer look at two of them quickly, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, So the six factors contributing to how we got here. Here they are. Number one, rising political polarization and cross-party animosity of U.S. politics. We see that everywhere. Oh, yeah. Number two, rising levels of teen anxiety and depression. Number Huge,
0: huge huge issue. Yes. Huge. That's
1: its own podcast.
0: Google that one. You get about a million articles. That's its own podcast.
1: Uh, Number three, changes in parenting practices. Number four, loss of of free play and unsupervised risk-taking. Number five, growth of campus bureaucracy and expansion of its protective mission. And number six, increased passion for justice. So we're just going to give a very glancing blow to, number one, the rising levels of teenage anxiety and depression. Um, so there's so much you could say about this. Why do we see teen anxiety and depression on the rise? And uh, the authors point to things like screen time, um, like social media. So this is, this is a quote from the book. Less than two hours a day of screen time seems to have no deleterious effects, but adolescents who spend several hours a day interacting with screens, particularly if they start in their early teen years or younger, have worse mental health outcomes than do adolescents who use these devices less or spend more time in face-to-face social interaction. So what what the authors are saying is teens and young adults, you know, they're coming to college having less um, unsupervised time that, that they're doing their own thing more time on screens, more time being told that the world is a dangerous place and you're constantly unsafe. You know, so it's little, it's little wonder that you're anxious about the world. There's world trends with political unrest. There's job prospects. There's student loans. I mean, I feel like people are always talking about student loans. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that our teens are having a hard time.
0: Yeah. And these are real issues. But of course, as parents, we want our kids to be able to function in the world one day, mm-hmm. right? I right. mean, no one's saying, I, I want my kids to not grow up till they're 40 mm-hmm. and have to live with me, and, and you know, you want your child uh, to mature at the proper rate so that they can function and contribute and hopefully live for God's kingdom in the, in the world.
1: That's right. So we could say so much more about that.
0: I mean, I, I'll just add, that's one final thing for me. I think something that's undergirding all of this is that any kind of suffering or failure is always a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And I just think about my own life and I have absolutely learned so much from things that didn't work out, from things that oh, I tried, yeah. from mm-hmm. ways that I failed.
1: From your disappointments? From
0: my disappointments. Absolutely. And this, this mindset that anything that goes wrong in our lives is bad for us mm-hmm. is so wrong. That's right. I I, I remember so much more... The convicting comments from someone who really cared about me about something I could change than the compliments that i 've heard mm-hmm. in my life you That's know right. um, so that that to me, and there's a lot of implication there for the Christian life Absolutely. about um, not just about suffering but even about endurance, about strength, about yes. so much yep,
1: yeah, so the last thing we want to look at is just um, how one of those reasons that they singled out was changes in parenting practice so I've, I've done other reading on this topic because I think it's fascinating. But anymore in our culture, an unsupervised child equals an unsafe child. Is that not true, Josh? I mean, you read in, this, in the news about – I read a story about a mother who was arrested and prosecuted because she let her daughter go to the park to play by herself. Mm-hmm. She was nine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but that's now a criminal – offense of child neglect or, or whatever it may be. So I think a lot of this started with the kidnapping scare in the 80s. You know, and then there were these national campaigns of um, the, the pictures of, of missing ch- children on milk cartons. Yep. You know, so parents got really, really afraid and they became less willing to let their kids do stuff independently and to have independent experiences because they overblew the risk of a kidnapping. And that's still the case today.
0: Yep. Yep. We, we can never avoid all risk. That's right. In life.
1: They the authors did a lot on this topic. It's a really interesting discussion for any of you who are interested in it. You know that they they say things like this. The problem with this kind of thinking about you have to supervise your children at all times and, you know, all that stuff is that when we attempt to produce perfectly safe systems, we almost inevitably create new and unforeseen problems. So you're saying, okay, you're safe, you're safe, everybody's safe, but then You're robbing the children of the opportunities to develop independence, to develop resilience, to flex their muscles at doing things for themselves, and even to feel a sense of like, um, hey, I can do this. I don't Mm -hmm. know what that's called, but Mm -hmm. like a self-confidence.
0: Independence, self-confidence. Yeah. I don't have to have mom and dad doing everything for me.
1: Right. Absolutely. So there's just you know a lot of these cultural changes where children aren't left alone to play. I don't mean leaving for the weekend or something and your 5-year-old's home alone that is not what I'm talking about yeah. but but you know the thing is there's what what I would want to stress is there's a degree of risk to everything I mean you could have your kid inside um playing uh anything and maybe their chair is going to tip over they're going to hit the back of their head and they're going to die I mean I'm just saying like there's no perfectly Safe thing, and by limiting what we allow our kids to do, we're actually um, guaranteeing that they aren't having the chances to grow more independent and to get more skills. So, I think parents really need to rethink that equation. Safety is not the highest goal necessarily. You want to be smart. You don't want to be dumb and like send your three-year-old out to play yeah, in the street. wear
0: all the rollerblade gear. It's good. <laughs> wear that's, the gear and then don't, send
1: them out. You don't want a
0: broken <laughs> wrist. That's a huge pain. That's right. Yeah.
1: So we're, we're, we're saying parents need to use discretion, but at the same time, maybe we need to be willing to take more risks than we have in these last several years in order to help our kids develop more resilience.
0: Let me say something to Christian parents increasingly in our society, parents have such unbelievably high expectations for our kids. Mm-hmm. And I get it. We love our children. They're blessings from God. The Bible says that. But I can't help but wonder if some of this is just, we have this beautiful, perfect plan for our children instead of instead of really just leaving it more in God's hands. Yeah. Yep. Again, there's a balance there, all that. But I just can't help but wonder if that's part of this here, mm-hmm. what we're talking about.
1: That's right. Yeah, so I'm just going to give you the three points of application that our authors give us at the very end of the book. These are great. They are kind of responses to the three great untruths, and I think they're good for all parents, for all lovers of children, for all education, every person in education. Um, so here it is, whatever your identity background, or political ideology, you will be happier, healthier, stronger, and more likely to succeed in pursuing your own goals if you, here they come, three things, seek out challenges rather than eliminating or avoiding everything that feels unsafe, free yourself from cognitive distortions rather than always trusting your initial feelings, and take a generous view of other people, looking looking for nuance rather than assuming the worst about people, within a simplistic us-versus-them morality. So this is just a fantastic book, guys. We're just barely grazing the surface. I would really encourage uh, our listeners to look into this one. If you are an NAPC uh, member, The Lamp Post has this book uh, ready to be checked out, so it's a good one.
0: Yeah, go on our Facebook group and tell us what you think. Yeah. Give us your your thoughts. Yep. All you have to do is, is go on Facebook and search... Intersect Podcast. That's all you got to search. Mm-hmm. Our, our group will come right up, ask to join it. And we'd love to have a discussion here about this. We know that this is a complex issue. And it's
1: provocative.
0: It's very provocative. Yeah. You may not agree with everything that we said today. That's okay.
1: And we'd love to hear if you do Yeah,
0: down. tell us your thoughts. Yeah.
1: So, Josh, what have you been reading?
0: Well, I just finished a book called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Um, couldn't put it down. I'll I'll say this. I don't know how many of us realize we're in the midst of the worst drug epidemic in American history. Mm. It is starting to go down a little bit, but um, really crazy uh, story of greed, addiction, struggle, pharmaceutical industry, the whole nine yards. I do have greater compassion for many people like how they took the path to addiction mm-hmm. and and the reality of, of your life when you are addicted uh, those things my compassion grew for sure but um, yeah it's really crazy how many Americans have become addicted to opioids mm. it's really wild mm. and uh, and actually if you the history um, the poppy plant, is probably the, the drug that humanity has the most longstanding love-hate relationship with mm. in our species history, really. Um, people have been using morphine for a long, long time. And uh, anyway, just quite a book Sounds and like a um, gave me greater compassion for sure. Mm.
1: Well... Uh, we told you guys where about that Facebook group come and find us on Facebook just search up intersect podcast you know that's what the kids say now they say search up search up yeah at least that's what our kids say and I hear people saying this search it up search it up yeah so like search it that. up search it up come on to Facebook and search it up intersect podcast
0: search up. Instagram. Yes, yeah, search all us up on Instagram. Uh, I don't know if we're
1: using it right, but it's Intersect Podcast on Instagram. Go to
0: Apple Podcasts, rate, yeah, review, search us up on Apple subscribe, Podcast. all Absolutely. that. Give us a give us a five star. Write yep. write something nice, please.
1: <laughs> that yeah. sounded desperate. Uh, and also, well, just if you
0: want to, I mean,
1: <laughs> feel free to send us an email. Any comments, any feedback? It's intersect at anyprez.com.
0: Thanks for listening, and see you next time.